0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We have to use every weapon at our disposal if we're going to meet our goal. Tell patients even more than you're already helping them today. And to be honest with you, it requires somewhat of a change in mindset, it requires a lot more openness
1: open data, open collaboration, and above all, open minds. Corporations like Elsevier are avaricious. They they have uh, the highest profit margin of any publisher, and possibly of any corporation in the world because they, uh, they charge authors going in, and they charge authors to access to, the, to their own information.
0: This week is Open Access Week, an opportunity to celebrate and raise awareness of the emergence and continued growth of open access. Countries have been taking increasingly strong steps toward making their research openly available with mandates that require researchers who accept public grants to make their published research results freely available online within a reasonable time period. The basic principle behind open access is to facilitate public access to research, particularly the research that's funded by taxpayers. This can be achieved by publishing in an open access journal or by simply posting a copy of the research online. To help sort through the issues associated with open access, I spoke with Professor Leslie Chan, a professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough and one of the earliest leaders on open access. Professor Chan was one of the original signatories of the Budapest Open Access Initiative, a historical and defining event in the global access movement, and has long been active in the experimentation and implementation of scholarly communication initiatives around the world. He joined me to explain the basics, where things stand today, and how open access may develop in the future. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Okay, that's great. So, uh, as you know, this podcast is going to run at the start of Open Access Week, a week that's been used for a number of years now to celebrate and raise awareness of the emergence and continued growth of open access. So why don't we start there for those who are new to the issue? What is open access?
1: Okay, so I guess as it's simply as open access uh, simply refer to uh, mechanisms that allow the distribution of research outputs online uh, that is free of cost and uh, free of other access barriers. And uh, the, the most common access barriers uh, would be that of copyright. So, so a key uh, 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 reason for open access is to uh, reduce uh, the barriers to copyright so, uh, and so that uh, people can not only access the material for free, but they're allowed to copy them and reuse them and to redistrib- and redistribute them. So uh, generally, uh, uh, some advocates like to see open access materials with a clear Uh, uh, open license uh, attached to it so that people could make use of them uh, uh, illegally without having to worry about uh, the legal implications of it.
0: Okay, so we're talking about large amounts of research that typically available via subscription that's certainly accessible to people who find themselves on university campuses or within the educational community who often buy these bulk subscriptions, which can be very, very expensive, Open Access takes that same research and ensures that it's openly available to anybody who wants to be able to access the access the scholarly work.
1: Yeah, well, that's the intention. So uh, as you know, the bulk of uh, the academic literature, that's a peer review uh, research literature, is still largely uh, under subscription uh, access model. Uh, and so the, the, the goal of open access is to reduce the amount of subscription access and increasing the amount of open access over time. Uh, that's really the goal. Because, as you said, the subscription is really uh, unreachable for uh, many institutions. Even rich institutions, like the University of Toronto, can can subscribe to everything that's available. Uh, and so, cost is certainly a big barrier, uh, particularly to poor institutions. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Now why don't we take a step back before getting a sense of where things are at today and unpacking a little bit, some of the terminology, why don't we take a step back and can you walk us through where the, where the movement, where the emphasis on open access began? How did all of this get started?
1: Well, so um, as, as you mentioned, I mean, one of the key reasons the open access movement started was because of the, the rising cost to subscription over time. And in the last, three decades, the subscription cost has gone up exponentially in many cases. And so uh, there's been a lot of people, or the scholars and uh, librarians in particular, has been very concerned about this sort of runaway cost and think about different, different models, if you will, to accessing the research literature. And then uh, along came the, the World Wide Web, which is was kind of a big uh, door opening for this opportunity because uh, the distribution cost through the World Wide Web, through the Web, is could be literally zero. And so the idea was that if we could get scholarly literature uh, onto the Web and just use it as a mechanism for distribution, uh, we could vastly reduce the cost uh, of uh, distribution. Uh, That was the thinking initially about the open access movement about 20 years ago. Uh, And so I would say coincide with really the arrival uh, of the web and and the experimentation also began uh, in a number of ways, uh, including people uh, putting their own material online, the so-called self-archiving movement. Uh, that kind of went hand in hand, or in, in fact, preceded uh, what we call the open access movement. And so, some of these experimentation, again, were were made possible uh, by the web itself.
0: So the internet, <clears throat> internet's transformative, in the way that, of course, it, people access information, and it sounds like the scholarly community saw an opportunity there, particularly in light of increasing costs for subscriptions, to say that they could take those same works, make them available essentially at zero cost from a distribution perspective by using using the internet. Now there's a a whole series of different terms that get bandied about when we talk about open access. I thought we might try to unpack some of those so that we could Uh explain a little bit better some of the things that we're talking about. I guess one of the starting points is When someone wants to publish under open access, a researcher says they'd like to ensure that their work is available, does that mean that they have to publish in a journal that is itself open access, or are there different models that they can use so that they can publish in one place but make available their works, let's say, through the Internet, as you've just noted?
1: Yes. Yes. Indeed. So there are the, the the internet allows a variety of options uh, to be uh, made available. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is is authors putting their own work online to share. Uh, so one of the uh, um, a key mechanism of open access, the so-called green open access, uh, is that model of authors publishing in a conventional subscription-based journal. Uh, that is, the journal, the, the the official journal article itself may be still under subscription license, uh, but the authors uh, put a copy of that article's. Uh, on their institutional repository or a repository that is publicly accessible, uh, but it's also under the agreement of the publishers because many publishers actually allow authors to self- archive their paper after publications as well. So this is so-called green the green models of open access. Um, and then the other uh, common um, mechanism is is that born, born digital, Uh, routes so that a lot of journals are are now created as open access journals from the start. And so those are often referred to as go open access uh, journal because in that case, the authors publishing this journals is automatically open access. Through different business mechanism,, uh, but it is born digital and freely available uh, as soon as it's available, but without having the author to intervene in terms of putting a copy on their own servers or whatnot.
0: Right. So it sounds like we've got what at least two different approaches, the the latter one that you just mentioned, the goal, so-called gold open access, where the work is born digital in the sense that it is openly available from the beginning and the journal itself committed to that openness. So if you choose to publish with uh, an open journal, a gold OA journal, you know that the work is going to be made available right from the outset, whereas many others instances scholars may want to publish in a journal that is not itself open access, but you're suggesting that publishers allow for the author, for the researcher, to still make that article openly available on the internet, either themselves through their own website or self archiving, or increasingly through their institutions who have these so-called institutional repositories who give a place to post those articles online.
1: Right, that's correct. So So different publishers have different uh, agreement or licensing terms in terms of allowing authors to self-archive. and so they they have varying period of what they call embargo periods. And some would, would have rather long embargo period, but some now have very, very liberal embargo period, maybe six months or even uh, no embargo period at all. And so uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, funders uh, and po- uh, authors who are pushing for uh, this serial embargo model so that they could publish in uh, conventional journals but also have an open access version available immediately to readers
0: okay let's unpack that just a little bit because it may surprise some to hear that commercial publishers publishing these journals at the very high subscription costs that you just that you mentioned earlier on also will build into their contracts with those authors with the researchers the ability to self-publish a version of the article online you know, how did that come about? Public, where, where do publishers generally stand on open access, and, and what do these kinds of contracts look like?
1: Well, I think there are, it's hard to kind of generalize across publishers, but I would say, uh, by and large, the, the for-profit commercial publishers are probably the least liberal in terms of the embargo period. That means they probably demand the longest Possible embargo period, sometimes two years, sometimes one year. One year is fairly common. And their rationale is that by having that longer embargo period, they would be able to protect their subscription uh, revenue. Uh, and then after one year, hopefully, then it is the demand may drop, and so open access is not going to hurt their subscription, uh, and that's their rationale. But there are studies that have actually shown uh, that uh, open access version of these articles actually do not hurt, subs- hurt subscription because, by and large, these commercial publishers make these package deals with big libraries around the world. And so libraries are committed to paying the subscription regardless of the amount of OA contents available through author self archiving. And so so from a publisher standpoint, it really doesn't hurt the bottom line. Uh, And there are more independent, smaller publishers that understand that. There are what I call uh, authors friendly publishers that would make available, their OA version, in many cases now, uh, immediately open access along with their subscription uh, version as well.
0: Okay, so we've got publishers increasingly recognizing that if their primary market is the academic library market, the academic libraries will continue to buy regardless of an embargo period. It, uh, does the, the attractiveness of a particular journal for subscription purposes isn't really linked to whether or not the article happens to be available online or not, uh, in part because all of this gets bundled together. It's interesting to hear that the publishers have moved in that way. There's, of course... Two other big stakeholders as part of this process, there are the researchers themselves, and then there are what are called the funders, in a sense, uh-huh. the, the large granting agencies that help fund this research. Why don't we take a look at, at what both, of their, both of their perspectives. Where, where in your sense, do, do researchers stand today? um uh, you know clearly there are incentives to publish in what would, might be perceived to be the best so-called journal in their field at the same time presumably there's a strong desire to be read and have an impact as part mm-hmm. of the research how does how does open access influence some of that decision making
1: well again i think there this Uh, varies quite a bit across different fields and discipline. Uh, I think by and large there seems to be stronger uh, awareness uh, about open access in, in, in some of the life sciences and the biomedical sciences Relative to the humanities and social sciences. Now, this is not to say that humanities social sciences uh, are not uh, interested or aware of uh, open access. It's just that um, because many uh, humanities um, um, researchers still published in in monographs, uh, in sort of uh, scholarly journals, article uh, so articles, uh, which is primarily. a lot of these debate and and funding focusing on uh, is not some of the mainstay of humanities scholars. And so we see big disciplinary differences in terms of uh, awareness, but also in terms of their support for open access. Uh, And so it's it's harder to generalize across the the disciplines. Uh, But I would say by and large, we're seeing growing uh, a a growing number of people uh, who are at least aware of the debate. Uh, but still, uh, the level of awareness is quite different um, and, and quite uneven.
0: In the, in the areas where there is a sense of, of greater awareness and perhaps greater usage, life sciences as you mentioned, do you, have a, do you have an idea of roughly what percentage of, of articles are made available in some of those disciplines on an open access basis? In other words, how, just how big has this become in, in certain, certain disciplines?
1: Yeah, so I think there was a pretty large-scale study that was done last year, uh, published in PLOS, and I can send you the link later, that find that in the biomedical sciences, there's almost as much as 50% uh, of published articles that are available through open access, uh, either through repositories or through uh, direct go open access. Uh, and so that's pretty high number. Uh, and then you you, you you have other disciplines like physics and mathematics that have very, very high numbers of, of uh, uh, self-archived OA versions. Uh, and then the numbers drop down a fair bit when you come down to social science and humanities. I think somewhere in the 20 to 30 percentile at the maximum. Mm-hmm. Uh, some would say even maybe even less, 15 percent
0: okay but in some areas certainly in in some of the the sciences life sciences we're talking about quite literally half or perhaps even more of all emerging research is now openly available i mean that feels quite transformative in those fields to think that so much of that research is now freely and openly available
1: uh very much so and i think the the rate of growth, as you see, is, is very impressive too. Uh, and, uh, and I think that a lot has to do with the fact that uh, for a lot of the life sciences and the medical sciences, the funders' mandates are a lot more explicit in terms of having requirement uh, of their grantees to make sure that they're, they're, they're co- there's an open access version available, or that they, in fact, allow uh, provision uh, to pay for some kind of publication fees for open access. So among those funders, there's been a strong push to ensure that the resources they fund are open available, and that's why there's you see a much higher percentage of open access uh, publication in those areas.
0: Well, so that's very interesting. Let's drill down just a, for a moment on that. So in many disciplines, there is a, a strong correlation, obviously, between the research and funding that can come from granting councils or or other funders that that provide the, the necessary funds, the research support for the research to take place. What you're suggesting with, with these funder mandates is that increasingly, Funders are, are effectively demanding that their researchers make their their work that they have now that they've funded openly available. Is that is that where these funder mandates are going?
1: Yes, I think the the, the reason the funders are demanding this is that they understand that if they fund the research and the research is not accessible then their funding is really not reaching their maximum uh, impact. So, so for them to invest in research, uh, they realize that the research has to be read. That means it has to be distributed as widely as possible. Uh, otherwise, uh, uh, the research might, might as well have not been done uh, because if it's locked up and nobody can discover it.
0: Yeah, You mentioned that part of what funders may be willing to fund as part of what I think is often referred to as knowledge dissemination, making that research available, is effectively to pay publishers to ensure that work is is openly available, available under open access. Can you talk a bit about that side of the open access equation?
1: yeah well I, I think that tends to be the the I think wh- where people gravitate towards when they talk about funders support for open access is is funders paying for these so-called article processing charge that many uh, publishers are uh, have created as a model for providing direct open access So there are many journals that are actually completely open access and their their business model is to have the pay to publish models so that authors who submit to those journals pay a publication fee and then uh, readers are free to 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 read uh, and so quite a number of journals have have completely uh, subsist on this particular pay to publish models and we' are seeing more, subscription-based journals are actually combining this model with some of the traditional subscription base as well. And the reason they are, many of them are, are migrating to this model is because the funders, in some cases, and some big funders uh, are willing to say, well, they will support the researchers as part of their grant. They can write in a publication charge for it so that, that at the end of the research, they will be able to pay for uh, publication fees to get their research directly available to the readers. So that's why we're seeing a particular growth in this area, Uh, but that I should underscore that this is only one mechanism by which uh, open access journal could be supported. Uh, There are many, many journals that are supported by other kind of models. Uh, directly subsidized, for example, by the funder in terms of uh, for the operating costs of the journals itself. And this is quite common in the humanities and social sciences uh, where funders would actually support the operating uh, budget for some of the journals completely subsidized in that sense so that the authors don't have to pay for uh, uh, the go-open access.
0: This So it feels like we've got this... You've got three main stakeholders as part of this process. We've got publishers who are looking for economic gains, commercial viability in a world where in some disciplines, more than half of the materials are openly available online. Sometimes that's through subscription, sometimes that's through these author fees, and sometimes I suppose it's through a combination of all of those. There are the funders themselves that are funding the research who say, listen, if we're going to fund it, we're going to ma- we want to maximize impact, and are either willing to help pay for that through these fees, or simply say, if we're going to take the money, you've got to publish and make of make sure that those works are openly available and then of course we've got the researchers themselves do we have data on the benefits for the researchers so researchers may say if i want the i need the grant support so this is just something i'm going to have to abide by but is it more than that is there is there do we have data that suggests that when something is openly available the impact of their research obviously the accessibility of their research increases as well
1: well, I think in the earlier part of the open access movement, there, there, there was a so-called. Uh, citation advantage uh, of open access uh, publications and the idea is that if, if your articles is, is openly available uh, people are more easily able to find it and cite it and therefore uh, you you will have a advantage relative to the non open access journals in terms of citation rate and citation of course is a, a common proxies that uh, academia use in terms of measuring impact so that that kind of ideas of citation advantage have been a bit of a motivation for a lot of people who want to make the work open access now and then of course in recent years we have see the rise of social media so a lot of uh, use of Twitter's and other kind of uh, online social media to promote research and so uh, there is additional argument that if your work is openly uh, available in the first place these social media can also amplify the attention to your work and therefore uh, translate into citation as well. So we're also beginning to see some research that are documenting these type of differences between open access versus non open access material. Um, so this is where where we are at. But I should add that you you, you named three key players in, in, this, in, in the current scenario, but you're missing another, actually a very big uh, set of players. And that is of course, the library itself. Because uh, traditionally is the library that pay the subscriptions on behalf of the researchers in order for them to access the uh, the materials that they need. Uh, and so libraries have always played a part in terms of mediating that access. And libraries are increasingly, I mean, as I said earlier, they were one of the earlier uh, uh, players in terms of uh, thinking about open access because they know this kind of subscription is just not sustainable uh, uh, forever. And so they have been very working very hard in terms of finding alternatives, uh, working with scholars, creating uh, alternative open access venues, uh, infrastructures, and so forth. And the repository are, of course, supported by primarily by librarians. And so they are now also helping uh, scholars to create independent publishing platforms to help them uh, learn how to publish uh, as communities and so forth. So, so I want to uh, uh, make sure that when we include li- library librarians, it's a very very important piece in this OA uh, landscape.
0: I'm glad you. I'm glad that you made sure that that was that that was raised. They've at, at my own university, the University of Ottawa, played the lead role in the open access strategy that we have that which includes support for those that want to publish under open access a publishing program with the university of ottawa press and of course raising awareness through things like open access weeks and the like so that's you're absolutely right to raise the ra- raise the importance that they've played the centrality that they've played in terms of some of these debates uh, as well as advancing the issue but Be- before we we get to a sort of a look ahead just uh-huh. to ensure that we contextualize it from a Canadian perspective, we've talked about sort of funders and journals and, and researchers in the abstract. From a Canadian perspective, we've got some major funders, uh, particularly coming out of the government, the tri-councils. Where do they stand on support for open access?
1: Um, the tri-council, the Human uh, Social science. Humanity Research Council, the CIHR, the, the Canadian Inst- Institute of Health Research, and, and NSERC, the Natural Science and Engineering Research Council, the three councils uh, were some of the earliest funders. Uh, at least from major countries, to have uh, what they call a harmonized open access policies. That is, the three councils that agree that they would also require their fundees to uh, comply with open access uh, provision. That is, at the minimum, they have to make uh, a version of the publication uh, available. Within 12 months of publication, but ideally they would like to see immediate open access in either in the green route or the gold or the, or the gold route. Uh, but these Thai Council, even though they have the policies in place, uh, haven't really enforced them uh, in any strict way. So there's really not a lot. of teeth to these policies so uh, often uh, researchers or grantees would say oh okay well you have this policy and then they just go on do whatever they are are accustomed to doing without paying too much attention to the requirements Uh, but again libraries has been uh, playing a key part reminding a lot of researchers that well if they receive funding from the tri-council they have to do something with their with their open access compliance. And so they create open repositories in order for the researchers to deposit the work uh, if there are so open access journals that are available in their field. So, so th- this is where we were, we are mostly. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's interesting. What, you know, you've described over the last bit, the, the movement on a number of fronts, the role the librarians have been playing, the increasing benefits for researchers and greater awareness, depending on, Uh, Your discipline, publishers, greater acceptance, and of course the role the funders are playing. If you were to think about where we are are likely to be when it comes to open access, five, ten years down the road, we've got a sense of just how much things have changed over the last decade. Where do you see the next decade heading when it comes to this issue?
1: Well, I think I'm notoriously bad for predictions (laughs) because if we look back at the early open access movement, I mean, we're almost reaching the second – well, almost – the second decade is almost over and of course even in the first you know first 10 years we were very very optimistic that oh in 10 years 15 years uh, much of the scholarly publication will be open access and that the awareness of open access will be would be great and so on and so forth uh, but you know almost 20 years into open access we still see uh a lot of sort of business as usual in the sense that uh, the big publishers actually have gotten much bigger in terms of both their sizes, but, but also in terms of their footprint and control of the scholarly publishing uh, uh, venues, uh, because they're able to really dictate a lot of the terms in terms of uh, the journal ranking, the journal impact factors, and so forth. And because academics are still largely driven by these incentives of, of tenure and promotions and grand runnies and so forth, they felt obliged to publish in these commercial uh, public and so in that sense, a lot haven't changed. In fact, a lot have become even narrower in, in terms of what what researcher perceives to be their, their primary sort of goals. And so what I would like to see rather than what I think would happen in the next 10 years is that we like to see uh, uh, researchers and academia take back these kind of uh, uh, control over how to define uh, research impact and research excellence and so forth uh, instead of allowing the commercial publishers to d- define for them so that they have to kind of live by their rules. Uh, i am like to see that we take back control of what constitute uh, quality research, what constitute excellence, what constitute uh, community buildings as a, as central to scholarly communication and open access. So I'm not sure whether that will happen in the next 10 years, but that's certainly a big on my wish list.
0: Okay, and I think it's a, that's certainly a, obviously a worthwhile goal that many would share. Uh, along those lines, you've just published a book called Contextualizing Openness, Situating Open Science, together um, with several other editors as part of a University of Ottawa Press and IDRC publication. I know it's openly available. Can you tell me a bit about that publication? Because it's it's a nice fit with what you've just been describing about where we, we'd like to see things head in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So that uh, book is actually a collection of uh, a research network that uh, was conducted over a three-year period and just landed last year. Uh, it was funded by IDRC in Canada and DFID in the UK. And the reason we put together that research network was really to examine what we understood to be open access and open science, because I think... Uh, increasingly we've seen a very narrow definition of open access rather than a broadening and expensive definition of open access. By that I mean that when, when often you mention open access, people just jump to this conclusion, oh, that means you publish in a pay-to Pay to publish journals. You you have to have APCs to publish in open access, or well, therefore it's not for me, and it is it is unfair, and so on and so forth. Uh, but so so we want to set out to find out what people understand open access and what it means for open scholarship, rather. Uh, around the world uh, and we found that people really have much more nuanced understanding of what openness and open access means and in fact in in parts of the world uh, they don't want to take openness for granted that they, they will often tell us don't impose your open access model on us because this is not how we like to share our knowledge there are other ways we would like to share according to our terms uh, so you can't just impose one set of rules from one part of the world onto the other part of the world. So that really makes us think about open access uh, uh, as in a more critical and nuanced way. And, and in fact, um, many of them reminded us that if this APC, the article processing, models were to become more of the norm it will further marginalize a lot of the uh, uh, poor resource community, particularly uh, research communities in in the Global South. Uh, And in fact, open access, if that would become the norm, would become uh, a mechanism for creating more inequality rather than reducing inequality. So that book was really an opportunity for us to reflect on these very critical issues is 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 it open access by whose term and who's actually going to benefit from from all these uh, standard new new way of doing things, and should we be more thinking more inclusively about other ways of of making knowledge and sharing knowledge that we haven't yet considered?
0: It sounds like a really important contribution. We'll put a link to the book and more information about it, as well as the ability to download it directly on, the, on, the, on this, this episode's web page. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Well, Michael, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for all the great work you have been doing in uh, educating the public about the importance of all these policy issues.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbytes at p.o.box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbytespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.